mighty name. Hallelujah. Father, we glorify your name and we thank you for the season that we are in. A season where we do remember and reflect upon the fact that though sin was strong, Lord, you are stronger. That our shame was great, but you were greater, O oh God. That in your death and in your glorious resurrection from the death and the consequential outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Lord, sin no longer has dominion over us. Shame and guilt no longer riddle our heart, for we are free indeed to be the children of Almighty God. And we give you the praise and the glory and the honor. Lord, this morning, meet us, I pray, in this place, and may you be glorified in everything that's said and done. In Jesus' name, and everyone said amen, and amen. Come on, give the Lord a shout of praise one more time in this house for his goodness to us. Bless the Lord. Before you're seated, turn to your neighbor and tell him you love him. In Jesus' name. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite you to open them with me to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to begin at verse number, or excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning with verse 3 in a moment. Uh, I told you last week that we were going to be in the book of Hebrews um, right through till Easter, and I am not taking that back. We are. But this morning, I want to start in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and uh, there's something there that I believe we need to grab a hold of before we move into the book of Hebrews. Last week, For those of you that were not here, we started a brand new series just simply entitled Better. And this series is going to take us right into Easter. And uh, in this series, we are exploring the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all. We're investigating the fact that he alone is better. And for those of you that are just joining us, you may say, Oh, Pastor Kurt, that sounds very open-ended. What is he better than? Well, it doesn't matter what you insert in that blank. Jesus is better than it. He is better than them. Can you say amen? It doesn't matter what you want to discuss. Jesus is better than that. He is better than them for the glory and the honor of his name. In fact, the word better in the original Greek language means to be not only better, but to be greater, to be stronger, Uh, to be more praiseworthy or nobler. And so literally, it is just telling us that Jesus is better than anything you've ever gone through. He is stronger than anything you're going through right now. And he is greater than anything you will ever face in the future. That no matter what has caught your attention right now, no matter what has you focused off God and on it, God is greater. Jesus is worthy of more praise than anything you're going through right now. And that's why you should never let anything distract you from praising the Lord. Because I guarantee you, as difficult as it may be, your God is greater. He is better. And he is worthy of all of your praise this morning. Can you say amen to that in Jesus' name? So that really is the direction that we're going to be going uh, in over these next several weeks. Just looking again at Jesus being better. Uh, Jesus is better than any religion. He is better than any religious leader. He is better than any government. He is better than any political leader. He is better than any being. He has been given a name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords to the glory of the Father. We're thankful for that today. And we're going to be examining this, as I said a moment ago, through the book, or maybe better uh, expressed, the letter of Hebrews. And as we said to you last week, the reason that we chose the book of Hebrews is because that is the theme of that letter. Consistently, over and over again, you will find the author of Hebrews talking about the fact that Jesus is better and explaining why that is. And so that's why we're choosing it. We're choosing it for another reason, and that is that the letter was actually written to Hebrew Christians in the first century. These are Jews that had accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, which was very controversial there in the first century as a Jew. And they were experiencing in that time severe and very intense persecution. 
As I said to you last week, they were having their businesses confiscated. Their possessions were being taken and seized by the government. Uh, They were being publicly humiliated. Their families were being tore apart. And on extreme cases, they were even being martyred for their faith. And so as a direct result of this severe persecution, many of them, to alleviate that pain and that pressure, were now contemplating abandoning their faith altogether and returning to Judaism. Because they were just wore out. They just couldn't take the intense persecution and pressure that they were under any longer. And it's to that that the author of Hebrews sits down and he begins to write this letter to them. And he says, if you depart from the faith, you do so at your own peril. Because if you depart from Jesus Christ, you are departing from the only Savior, the only healer, the only deliverer, the only one who can provide a context for life beyond the grave. Because there is are no other options. There are no other alternatives. Jesus is alone, the Savior of the world. And you may alleviate some temporary pressure that you are under right now by departing from Christ, but you will inherit eternal consequences. You need to hold on. As difficult as it may be, don't grow weary in doing well, for you will reap if you faint not, Because the one who promised is also able to perform. Don't give up. Jesus is better. That's the message that's there. And that's why we're using it. Because let's be honest. Even as 21st century Christians, those who have embraced Christ as our Lord and Savior, serving Jesus is sometimes very difficult. And it is very complicated. And I want to be very clear on this. It's not difficult to obey the Lord. In fact, if you are a true disciple of Jesus Christ, it should be your joy to obey the Lord. That's not the difficult part. That's not the pressure. I enjoy pleasing my Savior. I enjoy obeying Him. That's not where the pressure comes in. The pressure comes in when you start to experience the fallout or the consequences of being obedient to the Lord. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about today. Because as a direct result of accepting Christ as Lord and Savior, there are places that you used to go, you don't go to anymore. You can't talk the way you used to talk. You can't do the things you used to do. You can't go the places you used to go because there's been a revolutionary change within your heart and within your life. But that has caused tension in your relationships. It's caused tension at the workplace. There are pressures that you are under, not in obeying the Lord, but as a direct result of your obedience to the Lord and the intense scrutiny that it has put you under. And sometimes you just get weary. Sometimes you just feel like giving up. And there may even be some of you right now that are contemplating abandoning the faith completely because you say, I want to alleviate that pressure. But again, the author of Hebrews says to you, if you abandon the faith, you do so to your own peril. And it's true that abandoning the faith may alleviate some of the temporal issues you're dealing with right now, but you're going to be inheriting a world of eternal hurt if you abandon the faith. Because as bad as it is, folks, we need to realize that there is no other option. There are no other alternatives. There is no other ship that's coming to save you. Jesus alone is the name that has been given by which man may be saved. Jesus is the only Savior. He's the only healer. He's the only deliverer. And he is the only one that can take you from death and bring you into his marvelous life. In Jesus' mighty name. So Hebrews says, don't lose sight of the fact that he is better. That he is the best. Hold on. Don't grow weary in doing well. But you will reap if you faint not because the one who promised is able to perform. In Jesus' mighty name. Can you give God all the praise again for that? For the glory of the Lord. So last week we looked at the fact that Jesus is a better word. This morning, we're going to look at the fact that Jesus is a better mediator. And to start here, I want to look at a great portion of Scripture that's found here in 1 Timothy, chapter number 2, beginning with verse number 3. Let's read it. For this is good 
and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And Father, we ask that you would open up our hearts and our ears to hear and understand these words. I pray that any defense mechanism that we would try to exalt, we would tear down so that we could hear the word of the Lord and what it truly means to have Jesus as a better mediator. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. And everyone again said amen and amen. All right, all of us this morning are at least familiar with the act of mediation and the need for a mediator. Now, before coming in here, you, have may, you may never have never considered it that way. You may have never thought of it in that way. But all of us, trust me, in this room are at least familiar with the act of mediation and the need for a mediator. Whether you're a Christian or not, you understand that. Whether you are a believer in God or not, all of us understand the concept of mediation and the need for a mediator. And the reason that I can say that is because all of us have found ourselves in a situation that required mediation and a mediator. It may have been very simple and elementary. It may have been very complex and complicated. But all of us, I guarantee you, have at one point or another found ourselves in a situation where we needed mediation and a mediator to state our case before someone else. Mediation, as many of you know, is used to address issues that have arisen between two parties that have broken down communication to the point where they now need the intervention of a mediator, someone to come in and hear both sides and do their best to bring those two sides together again. Let me give you a couple of examples. For instance, some of you, and this doesn't apply to all of you, but for some of you, the very reason you're married today is because of an act of mediation by a mediator. Because the very first time, and again, this doesn't apply to all of you, but I think it applies to some of you. The very first time you saw your future husband, the very first time you saw your future wife, you didn't know them at all. You had never had any communication with them. You saw them from a distance. Maybe you saw them in a crowd of friends. And it was the first time you saw them and you liked what you saw. And you liked how they talked and you liked their sense of humor and you liked the way they conducted themselves. And there was just something there that really set you into a place where you said, you know, I'd really like to get to know them at a different level. But there was a tension between you in that you didn't know each other, but you had a mutual friend. And you went to that mutual friend and you said to them, hey, listen, I was noticing him. I was noticing her. I don't know them, but the next time you talk to them, can you put in a good word for me? What did you ask him to be? Your mediator. To mediate on your behalf. And so they went and they talked to them and said, hey, you know what? They're pretty interested in you. And you're saying, well, I kind of thought the same thing. And they arranged a meeting. They got you together and the rest is history. Understand? How many of you actually had that happen to you? Let me just see your hands. I knew that there would be a number of you. That's exactly how it happens. That's mediation. Now, some of you have experienced it on a, a friendship level or maybe even with a coworker. You've had a friend, a coworker that you have been very close with and very familiar with for years, but maybe there was something that happened. You said something, they said something, you did something, they did something, and you had a falling out. And the tensions just kept getting so big that eventually you lost communication with each other. You didn't want to talk to each other. You didn't want to be in the same room with each other. But in your heart, you really wanted to be reconciled because you really enjoyed their friendship. But by the grace of God, you had a mutual friend. 
And that mutual friend wanted nothing more than for the two of you to get together. They cared about you, but they cared about the other party involved as well. And so they listened to your case, and and they listened to their case, and they came up with a way that maybe you could reconcile, and they arranged for you to get together, and you came together, and you reconciled, and you've moved on, and you are good friends even to this day as a direct result of mediation and a mediator. Now, some of you have even had that happen in your family, where a husband, a wife, a mother, a father, a grandmother, a grandfather, a son, a daughter, somebody went to another member of your family to mediate between you and another family member that had had a falling out. So all of us understand it. Whether you recognized it as that or not, you now know that you've all needed mediation, and you've needed a mediator to somehow reconcile you with someone that you've had a falling out with. Now, with regards to man's relationship with God, all of us instinctively know that we need mediation and we need a mediator. Again, whether you're a Christ follower or not, whether you're a Christian or not, Everyone instinctively knows, I think that's wonderful, that we cannot approach God on our own merit. We just know instinctively that there's something that is between man and God that separates us from him. And that somehow I need to have someone or something stand between God and me that will mediate our differences and cause us to be reconciled. Now again, we don't always put these things together. So, you know, that's why we just kind of give you illustrations. That's why for some of you, you don't really care about God and you just go about living your life the way you want to live and doing the things that you want to do. But every once in a while, you have that brush with conscience and all of a sudden your heart feels guilty. Something has happened and and it's made you feel that intense guilt. And some of you, the very first thing that you say once that cup of guilt is filled is, I need to get back to church. I need to get back to church. Why do you feel that way? Because in your mind, the church is your mediator. You just think, you know, I know that I've really hurt people. I know that I've hurt God. I know I've hurt myself. And I need to do something with this. But I know I can't come to God with all this, so I need to get back to church. Because church will mediate for me. If I come to the church and God will see me in church, and because of the church's reputation with God, somehow he'll look beyond my sin and and he'll embrace me one more time. For some of you, that's why you take it one step further and you say, I got to meet with a pastor, I got to meet with a deacon, I got to meet with an elder, I got to meet with other, some other spiritual person in my life. It may, again, be a grandmother or grandfather that's very godly, and you go to them and say, would you pray for me? Because you just have this knowledge. I can't go to God on my own. I have to have somebody stand between me and God and mediate on my behalf so that I can be reconciled to God. Now, some of you, it even goes broader than that. For some of you, it's just religion. You ever gone up to somebody and say, hey, are you a Christian? And they say, no, I'm not a Christian. I'm a Catholic. Or I'm a Baptist. Or I'm a Lutheran. Or I'm a Methodist. Because in their mind, the whole religion is actually their mediator. That, that my religion will stand between me and God and will mediate on my behalf and cause me to be reconciled with God. Now, some of you have graduated beyond all of that and you say, you know what, I don't need any man, I don't need any religion or any church to make me right with God. Here's what I believe. I know I've done some bad things. So I believe that if I am committed to being a better person, if I'm committed to doing good work, then my good works will cause God to overlook my bad and he'll accept me on that merit. It's because in your mind, your good works are your mediator. You believe that somehow your good work, your, your gifts to the poor, your helping people that are in need will somehow mediate for you. That God will look at your works and based upon those works will say, you know what, they're not really that bad. I'll embrace them again. So all of us know we can't approach God on our own. So we're always looking for a man. We're always looking for works. We're always looking for a religion or a church that can somehow mediate us 
mediate for us and bring us closer to God. Paul said, there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. And can I tell you this morning, he is not only a better mediator, he is the only mediator between God and man. I hate to burst anyone's bubble here today, but church cannot mediate for you. A religion cannot mediate for you. Good works cannot mediate for you. A pastor cannot mediate for you. A husband cannot mediate for you. A wife, a grandmother, a grandfather, a father, a mother, a son, a daughter. No one can mediate for you before God. Only Jesus can mediate for you because he is better. And I want you today to see that there is no other one who can mediate on your behalf but Jesus Christ. It is true you cannot come to God on your own merit, but there is only one mediator between man and God, and his name is Jesus Christ. So listen, as w- right out of the gate, I want you to know that this is not going to be a difficult mer- uh, message, but it's one of those messages where you're going to have to follow along with me. It's going to take me some time to set it up, and then the point is going to be very quick. But I need you to really grasp some things here if you're going to understand why Jesus is a better mediator for man. First of all, what exactly is mediation? And I know I've kind of touched on it, but let me give you a good, clear, working definition of mediation. Very simply put, mediation is the act of intervening between parties at variance or who are at odds with each other for the purpose of reconciling them and leading them into an agreement or into a covenant. That is literally what mediation is. It is is the act, again, of intervening between two parties who are at variance or who are, are at odds with each other for the sole purpose of reconciling them and leading them into some agreement or covenant that is necessary in order to reconcile them. Intervention between conflicting parties to promote reconciliation or settlement or compromise. So the idea is there is such a division between the two parties that an agreement, a covenant, something that has the interests of both in mind is put on the table so that within that covenant we can be reconciled again. So, a mediator is the one who intervenes between the two parties and leads them into a covenant that reconciles them again. The mediator listens to both parties, listens to the grievances of both parties, and then comes up with a plan, with a covenant, with some kind of an agreement that says, this will settle the issues. And if both of you will agree to this covenant, you can be friends again. That's what mediation is, and that's what a mediator does. Now, the very fact that the Bible says that we need a mediator is evidence of the differences that exist between man and God. Because if there were no differences between man and God, then there would be no need for mediation and the need for a mediator. It only stands to reason. The very fact that the Bible says that I need a mediator to stand before me and God and intercede for us is only the evidence that there is something that exists between man and God that is keeping them separated. We're actually told that before Adam and Eve fell, they walked with God in the cool of the day. And yet, you can't read your Bible but recognize we got a long way from that now. That man is desperately separated from God. So, what exactly has put us at odds with God? What is it exactly that has put a difference between you and I and God that has separated us from each other. Well, to put it bluntly, sin. Most of you knew that without my even saying it. Sin. You know, what's interesting about sin is that sin is something that we hear a lot about but know very little about. If I were to ask you to define sin, how would you go about defining sin? Some of you would immediately begin to give me examples of sin, but that wouldn't be the definition 
of sin. What is the definition of sin? Sin, very simply put and best understood, is willful disobedience. It is willful, intentional, deliberate disobedience against the laws of Almighty God. And I want to make one thing very clear. There is not one use of the word sin in either the Old or the New Testament that defines it as anything other than willful, deliberate, intentional disobedience. The Bible does not recognize sin as a disease. It doesn't recognize it as an infection. It doesn't recognize it as anything that you can contract or that you can inherit. Sin is always in Scripture seen as a willful, deliberate, intentional act of defiance against the law of God. You say, the law of God. Why do I need laws? Well, listen. God is a father to all mankind. Can you say amen to that? Okay. God is our father, but God wears many hats. Okay. God is not just a heavenly father. God is the moral governor of the entire universe. He is the sovereign king of the kingdom of almighty God. And everything has found its origin in God. Everything that exists has found its origin in God. So God is the sovereign king over it all. All that can be seen, all that cannot be seen, God is the sovereign king of it all. He is the sovereign king over the material world. He is the sovereign king over the spiritual world because everything that exists, seen and unseen, finds its origin in Almighty God. So this entire universe on all planes is the vast kingdom of God and he is the king of that kingdom. And as it is with any kingdom, there are laws that govern the kingdom of God. Listen, Sometimes laws can be inconvenient, let's be honest. But laws were never meant to take fun out of life. Laws were never meant to inconvenience you. Laws are good. Can you say amen? Laws are meant to establish peace. Laws are meant to establish tranquility. Laws are meant to protect the citizens of that kingdom. And every once in a while you get a smart aleck that romanticizes of living in a country where there are no laws. Man, I would just love to live in a, in a country that doesn't have any laws and no restraints. Yeah, how's that going to work for you? You would love that until the very first moment you were victimized by the lawlessness of someone else. And then immediately you'd say, I want laws back. Nobody in their right mind wants to live in a country where there are no laws. Because as inconvenient as they might be at times, we know that laws exist for good. Laws are there to protect us. They are there to promote tranquility. And even in the kingdom of God, there must be law. There has to be order. God doesn't just say, do whatever you want to. He says, I'm your king and these are my laws. Well, here's where the news starts going south. Because we have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all violated the laws of God. And there is no arguing that. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What does that mean to fall short of the glory of God? Understand this. God's glory, and we've talked about this. God's glory is God's reputation. It's God's character. It's God's nature. And reflected in the laws of God are the character of God. You may have never thought about that before, but literally, the heart of God is reflected in the laws that he has given. When you look at the law, you see the heart of God. So when we obey God, we're giving glory to his character. We are honoring his very nature. But when we disobey God, we are bringing reproach to his character. Because we're saying, God, your character is flawed. My way is the better way. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And to remove any doubt, God summarized all of his law in what we call the Ten Commandments. 
Everyone's heard of the Ten Commandments. And what you may not know is that the Ten Commandments actually sum up our obligations to God and our obligations to man. The first four commandments regulate our relationship with God. The next six regulate our relationship with our fellow man. And they are great laws. And here's what's interesting to me. Is everyone fights, you know, take the Ten Commandments out of the courtroom, take them out of our classroom. But there is not one person that objectively looking at the Ten Commandments would say, oh, this is terrible. No one could look at the Ten Commandments and say, if we live by this, we'd live in a worse world. No. Listen, you look at the Ten Commandments and you say, no, these are reasonable. And if everyone in the world lived by these Ten Commandments, we'd live in a better world. If you know the Ten Commandments, I mean, if we all just abided by those laws, we'd live in a much better world because they're reasonable laws that God has given But the reality is those laws were given to show us that we were sinners. To show us that we have violated the law of God. Because there is not one person that can look at the Ten Commandments and claim innocence. We are guilty of breaking all the laws. No, Pastor Kurt, I've never murdered anyone. Yeah, well, Jesus came in and clarified that and said, you've heard it said you shall not murder, but I'm telling you that if you've even hated somebody at a heart's level, you've already committed murder. But I've never committed adultery. Yeah, but Jesus clarified that one and said, yeah, but if you have ever looked at a woman or another man and lusted after them in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So listen, guys, we're all guilty. Can we all just admit that? Turn to your neighbor and say, you're guilty. Some of you just wanted to say that to your spouse this morning. (laughs) You're guilty. All right, we're all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all willfully disobedient to the laws of God. Now, as if that's not bad enough, if laws are going to be laws, and I told you you had to stay with me for a minute. If laws are going to be laws, you then have to punish those who break the law. If you don't have consequences, if you don't have penalties for those who violate the law, then they're not laws, they're suggestions. If you're going to uphold those laws, you've got to say to lawbreakers, this will be the penalty of breaking the law. And God's laws are so grand that they are not suggestions, they are laws. And God has prescribed a penalty for those who break the law of God. It's death. God is a God of life, and all of his commandments are commandments of life. So the only punishment fitting for those that break the law of God is death. And not just physical death, because everyone physically dies. Even Christians die physically. It's spiritual death, which is after physical death. It is eternal separation from Almighty God. And it is a place so horrific that the Bible refers to it as hell. It is a place of continual and unending, eternal suffering and torment. And that is the only punishment that is fitting for those that break the moral law of God. Now, this bad news, because we've all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God, which means the penalty of death, eternal death, is upon every one of us. And if we die physically... And that, that variance that separates us from God has not been dealt with. We are lost for all of eternity. You say, Pastor Kirk, that's bad news. Yeah, we're going to get to the good news. But you can't understand how good the good news is until you understand how bad the bad news is. And this is how bad it is, folks. We've all sinned. That means the penalty of death is upon all of us. And if we die in our sin... Separated from God, we will be eternally separated from God in suffering and in pain. Listen, God said it to the people of Israel this way in Isaiah 59 and verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But, but, your iniquities have separated you from God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Your sins have separated you from God. Your iniquity has separated you from God. And what God is saying there is that in our state, 
We, God cannot hear us. He has hidden his face from us. That is why you know instinctively you've got to go through a church or you've got to go through a, a religious leader or you've got to go through good works because you know that there's something and that's sin that has separated you from God and you know you can't overcome that on your own. You know that God can't hear you as long as that iniquity has separated you from the Lord. And God says, in this state of sin, I can't hear you and I've hidden my face from you. And you know, I was thinking about that yesterday. And, and I, I just meditated on that for a while. And you know, I think there's more that's being said there than sometimes we've seen. Because we always read times where God has hidden his face from us and we'll say, God cannot look on sin. I think there's more to it than that. I really do. And I'm not looking to add to or take away from scripture. But I think there's more than just that God can't look on sin. Though I believe that's true. I don't believe that God can look on sin. But I think there's something more. How many of you remember that old saying? You don't hear it much anymore. But law, uh, justice is blind. Some of you remember it. Justice is blind. In fact, if you've ever seen Lady Justice with the balances in her hands, what's on her eyes? A blindfold. Because what they're saying there is justice cannot afford to become emotional. It can't afford to become sentimental. Justice just weighs out the evidence and then gives the judgment. Because the law was not given to show mercy. The law was given for justice. And I thought to myself, maybe there's something there we're missing of why God is hiding his face. Because listen folks, I got some really good news for you. You need some good news right now. Contrary to whatever you've heard before you walk through these doors today, God does not want to judge people. God wants to show mercy. Doesn't that excite anybody else? I don't care what you've heard from Genesis to Revelation. God has shown us that his preferred method of dealing with sin is forgiveness is mercy. God told Adam and Eve, the day that you eat of it, you're going to die. They ate, and he let them live. God is a God of mercy. You say, wait a minute, the Old Testament is filled with God judging people. Yeah, but if you study most of them, he gave them hundreds of years to repent, and it was only after they continued to harden their heart that he finally judged them. Our God is a God of mercy. He is long-suffering. He is willing to forgive anyone. How many of you are thankful for that today? So, so as, as bad as we've broken his heart, God still wants to show mercy. So could it be that that's why he hides his face from us? Because he can't afford, as a moral governor, to get all emotional. He still has an obligation to uphold law. He still has an obligation to exact the penalty of death. And if he looks at us, he's going to move with compassion and just forgive. But he can't do it righteously because he still has an obligation to do justice and actually execute the penalty of death. That's the tension between man and God. It's not that God doesn't want us to forgive. It's how does he forgive righteously? How does he forgive justly? If all of a sudden all of the judges in the United States started to forgive every criminal, you and I would just be Outside protesting. We don't pay you to let guilty people free. We pay you to bring justice. Can God forgive you and I, the guilty, and not be unjust? Wow. So here's the problem. On God's part, if man is going to be restored to God, there's going to have to be a plan whereby the guilty are permitted to be freely forgiven, but at the same time, justice is served. The penalty has to be enacted. How do you do that? How do you punish sin but let the guilty go free? Now, that's on God's part. What about on our part? We've got no advocate. We have no uh, one to plead our cause. We can't open up our mouth because immediately we're going to condemn ourselves. So we need mediation. If we're going to make it, we need someone to plead our cause before God. Someone who consider God's position in this dreadful matter, but also consider the helplessness of our estate. So how is God going to deal with this? Well, in the Old Testament, God raised up a priesthood. 
not like the priests, and I'm not knocking the Catholic Church today, I'm just saying, not like the priests of the Catholic Church, but priests nonetheless. These priests became mediators. God chose them to come before him, to plead the cause of the guilty, considering the justice of God, and look for a way where they could meet again. They were qualified. And that's where we go to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse number 1 says this, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those um, who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself, the priest, is also subject to weakness. Because of this he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sin. Which he's just saying that he has to offer up sacrifices not only for the sins of the people he represents, but he has to offer up a sacrifice for his own sin because he is a sinner. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. And Aaron was the very first priest. And the priest came down from Aaron's lineage, if you will. Now, tucked in there, I don't know if you saw them or not, are the qualifications for the priest or the the mediator again. And I'm going to give them to you very quickly. First, he must come from among men. And the reason for that is obvious, but it was spelled out for us in verse 2. Listen to it again. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. The reason that he had to be chosen from among men is because only a man could sympathize with our weaknesses and our struggles. See, God couldn't sympathize on that level. It's not that God didn't want to forgive. The problem is, God is holy. He has never sinned. He has never tempted anyone to sin. He has never tempted anyone to sin. He has never been tempted himself. I mean, there is no sin, no scar, no blemish in Almighty God. And so though he's willing to forgive us, he just says, I don't get it. I don't understand your struggles, your flesh and blood. I'm a spirit. I don't get it. So I can't choose myself to mediate because I can't take into consideration your plight. So he says, you know what? I'm going to choose Certain men from among you, because they can have compassion on your weaknesses, because they're subject to the same weaknesses. They know what it's like to be tempted. They know what it's like to struggle. They know the tests and the trials and the tribulations of life. So God says, I'm going to choose them from among you because I need someone to identify with your own weaknesses. Secondly, he must be a friend of both. This is important. He is taken from among men, the Bible says, to deal with the things pertaining to God. He has to be a friend to both. Listen, (laughs) I know that if you needed a mediator, you would love to choose somebody that was more on your side. (laughs) Thank you for that honest amen. I mean, we would. But in order for it to be fair, you've got to choose someone that is impartial, that loves you, but also loves the other party as well. Because this has to be an agreement where you can come together. So that mediator had to be a friend to both. He is taken from among men to deal with the things pertaining to God. That priest, that mediator, he had to be impartial and he had to demonstrate equal concern for both parties involved. He had to be concerned about the integrity of God that would immediately be called into question if God were to just forgive the guilty. Because if God says... If you, if you sin, you're going to die, and then he doesn't follow through with that, why would I ever trust him with anything else? So he's got to take that into consideration, but he also has to be concerned with the eternal destination of mankind and the impossibility of man saving himself. So the mediator has to be impartial in this, but he also must be sensitive to the things pertaining to God. You know, a lot of times we only consider what we need in salvation, but did you ever consider what God needed in salvation? Not that he needed to be saved, but what needed to be included that would satisfy his demand for justice. You see, the priest had to be equally concerned about God and his obligation to the law as a moral giver. One example is, if God simply goes about freely forgiving the wicked, then what will ever place fear in the hearts of all of the other citizens to obey the law of God? Some of you have heard me say this for years, and I say it again. Why do we punish criminals in the United States? 
to reform criminals? No, because we know most of the time that doesn't work. Why do we punish criminals? To send a message to all of the law-abiding citizens. Don't break the law or you're going to jail. We want to send a message that crime will not be tolerated in this country. If God freely forgives all the guilty, then what's going to make us ever fear the Lord? What is ever going to make us stop sinning? If God just simply forgives us and there's never a penalty, then literally God's character is immediately thrown away. He must be appointed by God. God is the offended party here, so he must choose the mediator. And then I love this one. He must offer gifts and sacrifices to God. Now hear this, folks. I love this part. And those of you that, you know, you know me, I love talking about the atonement, the covering that Christ made. And this is the crux of it, though we're going to build on it next week. God set aside in the Old Testament various offerings to temporarily satisfy the penalty of death. God had to come up with a way, like we said. He had to find a way where he could let the guilty go free and freely forgive them, but also satisfy his obligation of, of judgment. So he did this. He set forth animal sacrifices. In the Old Testament, the blood of innocent animals was shed at various times to provide justice so that God could righteously forgive the guilty. Here is in essence what God said. Listen. And he was basically saying this through a mediator. You have sinned against me. And you have harmed my character. You brought injury to my heart. You have brought injury to my creation. And it will not be tolerated. But even though you've sinned still, I'm long-suffering. And I want to forgive you. But if I just forgive you, and I lay aside the penalty then you're never going to take sin seriously. You're going to trivialize it. It's not going to be an issue to you. So somehow, I want to freely forgive you, but I've got to satisfy justice. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sacrifice animals. A mediator is going to come on your behalf, and they're going to shed blood of these animals. And you're going to watch as that lamb as that bull is slaughtered before you. You're going to see its blood spill. You're going to hear its cry of pain and suffering. And you're going to remember what sin does to the innocent. It's meant to put a fear in your heart to never trivialize with sin and never think of it as no big deal, but to recognize somebody has to die when you sin. So that you will leave with that deeply impressed upon your mind and that it will cause you to think next time before you go into that which destroys my heart. And some people would say, Pastor Kurt, doesn't God honor animals more than you and I could ever imagine? That's why he chose them. Because animals are the closest that you can come to sinless beings on this earth. At least till that point. Because animals can't sin. I know some of you think that they do. My dog sinned on my floor today. <laughs> okay. But animals have no consciousness of sin. They don't know good from evil. They're just instinct. They don't know what's going on. They have no concept of sin. And that's why God chose them. He says, right now this is the best I've got on the earth. It's a sinless animal. It doesn't have any consciousness. But it's just an animal. So it can't ultimately take away your sin completely. No, that'll have to be a... That'll have to be a different sacrifice. These were the qualifications for the, the mediator, for the priest. Did Jesus meet every one of them? Every single one of them. And I'm not going to go through how he did because we're going to establish that not only did he fulfill them, but he fulfilled them on an entirely different level. 
You see, the Bible says that he's a better mediator, which is to say that Christ fulfilled each one of those qualifications in a way that another priest could never have done it. For instance, Jesus came from among men, but he was more than a man. He was the son of God. Now, you and I may not consider that, but that's why the virgin birth was so important. Because the virgin birth uniquely brought together the divine and the human. There's a lot of modern day scholars today that say, you know what? The virgin birth is no big deal. It really doesn't have any relevance. What are you talking about? The virgin birth is what brought forth the perfect sacrifice for mankind. That's why the angel said to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And Mary said innocently to the angel, how can this be? I've never been with a man. I've never had any sexual relationship. And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. The power of the highest is going to overshadow you. Therefore, also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So conceived in the womb of Mary at that moment by the power of the Holy Spirit was a being that had never existed before. A being that is both human and divine, the perfect God-man. Jesus was not just God. He was not just man. He was 100% God and 100% man. At the exact same time. He is a being that is both God and man. In Christ was the divinity of his father. Yet he dwelt among men with the humanity of his mother. And for the very first time. That great chasm between man and God. Was bridged in the God man Jesus Christ. Think about that. This great chasm that separated man from God. Was immediately breached in Jesus. Because he was God and man. At the exact same time. He brought them together. I love this. For the first time this had happened. In his eating, drinking, sleeping, sorrow, we see his humanity. Yet with his speaking to the storm and raising Lazarus from the dead, we see his divinity. He is better because he is both God and man at the same time, which means he's perfectly fitted to represent the needs of both. In his divinity, he knows what God requires. He knows what is right and what is just and that the penalty must be kept. Yet in his humanity, he knows our weakness he knows our failures he knows our struggles and he knows our temptations because he's just like us i love this listen to what it says in hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood he himself likewise shared in the same therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to god to make propitiation which means covering or atonement for sins of the people for in that he himself has suffered being tempted he is able to aid the those who are tempted. When you go to Jesus and say, Father, I don't think I can make it one more time. Jesus says, been there, done that, but I overcame. And if you lean on me, I'll bring you out as well in Jesus name. Remember that the mediator had to be a friend of both. Jesus was not just a friend of God. He was the son of God, but he was not ashamed to call us friends. Because in John we're told, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. How many of you are glad that you serve a Christ today who's not afraid to call you a friend? He's not ashamed to call you a friend. He had to be appointed by God. Jesus was appointed by God when the Father said of him, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But remember the last qualification? The last qualification was that that priest had to bring sacrifices and offerings to the Lord to satisfy that judgment. He had to bring it not only for, him, uh, for the people, but he had to bring it for himself because he himself was a sinner. This is why Jesus was better. Because he had no sin. The Bible says this. In Hebrews chapter number 7 and verse 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us. 
who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus, we are told, and we're going to read this in a moment, was tempted at every point just like we are. Yet never once in his human existence here on this earth did he sin against God. He never violated God. Which meant that not only could he come before the Lord and make an offering for sin, but he was actually able to give his life for us. He said, I don't have to bring an offering because I haven't sinned, but I am going to offer my sinless life on a cross so that the guilty can be set free. And in that moment, justice was satisfied as far as God is concerned because Jesus took it upon himself for you and me. And now when we look at the old rugged cross, how could we reasonably continue in sin knowing that the spotless lamb of God gave his life so that sin would no longer have dominion over us? We serve a mighty God today. Come on, somebody praise the lamb of God. Amen. He is, he is a better mediator in that he has made one last sacrifice in himself. We are saved. I love this. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us therefore come boldly. And that's not like this arrogance. It's really a better word there is confidence. Let us therefore come confidently to the throne of grace, not of judgment, of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I've always told you I see a difference between mercy and grace. Mercy is what we need when we fail. Grace is what we need so we won't fail. Because grace is divine power from on high. That's what it is. So here is our confidence today, and this is why Jesus is a better mediator. When I come to the throne of grace, I am, I am coming through a mediator who knows exactly, exactly what I've gone through. Because he's been there. He was tempted at every point, just like you and me. Yet he never sinned which gives him the unique opportunity to not only show mercy to us, but because he did not sin, to empower us so that sin would no longer have dominion. Earthly priests and mediators could never do that. The best they could do is offer up a sacrifice. But they said, you know what? We're sinners as well. We can't stop. But Jesus said, I never sinned. So not only can I show you mercy, but I can give you the power so that you never return to sin again. In Jesus' name. He's a better mediator. Come on. Give him a shout of praise here this morning. Hallelujah. What a mighty God we serve. Can we stand to our feet here this morning? And can we just lift our hands to the better mediator? And can you just lift your voice and praise his name today? Just thank him for all that he has done for you for all that he has done for you. Bless the Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Bless the Lord. Our precious Father in heaven, we are very well aware of the fact that we alone have no right in your presence. But we are so thankful that through your Son, Jesus Christ, you have made a way. And now we can enter in with confidence to the throne room of God that is not a throne of judgment for those who believe upon Christ, but is a throne of grace 
where we may obtain mercy when we have failed and grace so that we would not need to fail again. Jesus, you were sinless so that you were free to offer up your life as a sacrifice for us, as a substitute for the penalty that rightly belonged to us so that we would never have to die, but we might have everlasting life. In Jesus' name. I'm going to ask, as heads are bowed and eyes are closed here this morning, I'm going to ask our pastors, their wives, the elders, the deacons, and their wives to just come and stand across the front of this auditorium. And I'm not going to belabor this, but there may be some people here this morning, all of our elders, deacons, their wives, you know, just uh, pastors and their wives, just come and stand. There may be someone here today that does not know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and their Savior. And today, just stretch right out. This morning, we want to give you the opportunity to come to know Jesus. There may be some of you here today that you walked with the Lord years ago, but you know that you've been walking away from Him. And for years, you've been trying to find a mediator, someone to mediate on your behalf. You've met him today. His name is Jesus Christ. There is no other mediator between man and God. And so if you need Christ this morning as Lord and Savior, I want you just to come. I'm not going to belabor this. I just want you.